Hello and welcome. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast, I'm going to provide you with some of the important gems of wisdom from Webinar 26 in the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice webinar series. Rural GP Dr. Ros Bullock, fly and fly out psychologist Betty Kordonovsky, and fly and fly out psychiatrist Dr. Michael Millard join me in the webinar to talk about the realities of mental health care in rural Australia and to discuss some of the things that we can do to improve it. My other very special guest was Wayne Wiggum, community mental health educator and rugby league legend, who is also a person with lived experience of severe mental illness. Wayne and his friend Indigenous Elder and another rugby league legend, Percy Knight, travel all over New South Wales talking to people about ways to look after their mental health and listening to their stories. But before we talk to Wayne about the consumer perspective, let's hear about some of the related issues like the prevalence of mental health problems in rural areas. When we look at the literature, the research has failed to consistently show that there's evidence of higher rates of mental disorders. And the number that's uh, in mental disorders in, in rural and remote areas, and the number that's usually used is it's 20%, which is the same as urban and remote. Now that statistic comes from the National Survey um, in 2007. And look, I believe it's really not the whole picture. Um, the ABS data is pretty crude. Uh, and a range of factors are not captured by the broad descriptions like urban and rural. Um, so, for instance, I mean, a couple of things that I think about are methodological problems. Uh, I think that uh, what I see is probably an underreporting of mental disorders in rural and remote areas, and really that's around the sort of well-documented idea of rural stoicism. Um, and I'd also probably say that we see within rural variations and a good example of that is that the National Survey data tells us that substance use dependence is the same in rural and remote areas but we just saw a slide saying that alcohol use and high risk alcohol use is much higher in um, rural and remote areas and increases with remoteness too. Yeah. Um, I throw into that the very hard statistic and that is that suicide rates are uh, if uh, uh, at least twice as high uh, in rural and remote areas. And also the other statistic around MBS data that says that rural and remote populations are you know, up to a third times less likely to access services. So when I put all of that together, I think we've got a significant problem. To balance the bad news, I asked Roz to tell us about some of the good things about living in the country. I think you share life really quite deeply with people and that's uh, that can be challenging but it's definitely rewarding as well. Mm -hmm. um, I sometimes tell people that I don't come from a small community, I come from a big family um, and the same way as you don't get on with every person in your big family, you find ways to live near them and live next to them and certainly when uh, things are tough or um, when life has all its challenges, people definitely rally around each other a lot more. And I think that's something that needs to be celebrated about the mental health advantages mm -hmm. of rural life. And that links to what the Centre for Rural and Remote Mental Health in Orange in New South Wales says, and that is that, that the big value of living in a rural community is the power of collective planning and problem solving and the interconnectedness of the communities. And maybe these are the things that we need to harness and take advantage of if we're going to improve life for people living in rural areas. 
Practitioners in rural areas often talk about the difficulty of living in the community in which they work. I asked Rose how she managed this. I see it as part of the job um, to live alongside the people that I care for. Um, I think you just have to be very diligent about managing yourself and your behaviour and what you say, uh, no matter where you are, um, and certainly not opening the door for non, non-professional consultations outside of the consulting uh, room. Um, but it can be very hard. So trying to have friends who aren't also patients, that's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I do a lot of networking outside of our community as well. So, Is there an issue for you, Betty? Um, not really because I'm fly and fly out, so I don't actually live in the community, which I think makes it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, people generally are more comfortable to speak to me rather than some of the local councillors mm-hmm. because they know I'll go home after three days. <laughs> so that's an advantage for you of not being in the community. But what about you, Michael? What do you think about, about the, the boundary issues and being in the community sure. or not being in the community? Sure. Well, what a common issue I come across is the pointy end of mental health where we actually have to make decisions that people don't like. Um, and one of the main ones is when we have to use the Mental Health Act. Um, and that can be a catastrophic thing for a rural GP to be doing to a doctor-patient relationship. Um, so I actually uh, I see quite often that people are reluctant to do that uh, when they probably should. Um, and having people, uh, certainly in my health district, uh, we ha- we use quite a lot of telehealth to do the more pointy end assessments, which takes away that from local clinicians. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I very strongly, I'm very sensitive to the sort of boundary issues around the w- rural and remote work and some of the difficulties. So let's hear from Wayne. Wayne's here to give us the consumer perspective. Now, what qualifies you to give us a consumer perspective on rural mental health, Wayne? What do you do in rural areas? Who do you talk to and what sorts of things do you hear when you're out there in the rural areas? So for the last six years, we've been involved in something called Apple on Commit. So to get crowds in, we've been going to, you know, around 20 rural remote towns. Obviously, no one's going to come to listen to mental health talks because of the stigma. So what we do is we offer the local uh, sporting teams $500 if they get 80% of their uh, team members there. So that gives them a reason to come. Um, They can listen. Um, We've been getting more numbers every year and we have mental health workers with us. So if someone does put their hand up, we have someone to look after them. Often, um, because we do do mostly men, um, which we hope to change, we are getting more women, but Afterwards, we've had a lot of people stay back and want to talk to me. So I've heard a lot man-to-man because I kind of make it blokey when we do have mostly uh, males there so they feel safe with me. And, you know, I tell them that I'm a pretty tough bloke from the depression's had me crying like a little baby on the ground. Um, So I hear that, um, you know, they don't know they have a problem. So how do I know that I've got depression? They, aren't, they say that there's a stigma, obviously, and they don't want anyone to know. And because they're the man of the family, that they need to be the rock. Um, and I say, well, to be a rock, you wouldn't want your children to suffer like you are. So you would should ask for help, then they'll know to seek help. So we give them lots of reasons. Um, they know that they, they don't like to go to the local GPs often because they think that everyone will find out. So they go to GPs in another town. 
which leaves a lot of problems because the local GPs don't know that they might have somebody, you know, in trouble within their own towns. Um, and the local mental health workers, um, their trouble is we refer to people, I try to talk people into going to GPs. The trouble with the local mental health workers is uh, it can often take three to four months to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. In one town I was recently at, they even tried ringing Sydney University to get recently people that haven't been graduated yet try and get their last year students out there. Uh -huh. uh, and you'd be surprised the towns that have that problem, which takes a big toll on the mental health workers. So they're the type of things I hear. Um, the big thing I hear is that what really works for them if the local GPs have someone with lived experience to talk to them, to normalise it. And I know there are programs going around out there now where the lived experience person can say, look, it's okay, talk to them. That doesn't make you less a man or a woman or a person. And that really helps the GP or the professional um, work with that person. And I keep it really simple. If they don't understand the first few steps and it's needs, uh, they won't understand the more academic part of it. You were saying something to me earlier about the way people often come away from their GPs not really understanding what the GPs were saying and, and not feeling any better about what is going on for them. Is that right? Well, in Sydney, or in, the, in all areas, that's my biggest thing. And I talk to a lot of people just one-on-one -on -one if people ask me to talk to someone they're worried about. And I really keep it simple so they just don't quite get that it's a normal illness, that it's like any other illness, that lots of us have it, there's no shame. And I know the doctors probably do their best, but you've just got to, you know, keep it simple, stupid. I find that the dumbest down and then we understand, and it took me a long to understand, and once you understand what you have, then you can understand more about resilience. So there's a real need for us to get better at helping people understand what's going on with their mental health. The last point I'd just like to make is, too, the other one is that um, everyone, a lot of people feel that there are services there for the GPs to use, but they might not necessarily know everything that's available. They feel that there's plenty of services um, out there, you know, even to the point that most churches have counselling services, mm -hmm. um, but maybe that some GPs don't know everything that's available and that in local communities, they tend to, the people who have suffered tend to point people into the ones they believe are the ones to go to and who not to go to. So mm. they do talk amongst themselves, whether okay. that's right or wrong, that's perception. So it's very interesting to hear that people think GPs don't know what's going on out there in the community, isn't it? And as a GP, I feel very uncomfortable about that, but I think there may be some truth in it, you know? I asked Betty and Michael about how they felt fly-in, fly-out services were helping in rural communities. I fly up to Roburn in the Pilbara. Um, I'm up there three days a month currently. Um, I used to fly up every week to various towns, including mining towns. So in terms of advantages, definitely easier with boundaries, as we discussed earlier. Um, and I know clients are a lot more comfortable, as I said, coming to see someone who doesn't actually live in their community, especially when we're talking about a very small town where everybody knows each other. Um, the biggest disadvantage for me would be um, the lack of um, continuity of care, I guess, um, especially when people are waiting for a month or maybe two months for an appointment. They do get offered telehealth services, just not everybody's on board with that, unfortunately at the moment. Those three days a month do you do consecutively? So it's a block of three yes. days every month? Mm -hmm. okay. That's right. What about you, Michael? What's your view of the fly-in, fly-out services? Um, so I spend 50% of my time uh, in a rural location. So I fly up every week 
um, and I look after inpatients and outpatients. I completely agree with what Betty has said about some of the the positives that we do have uh, patients who, who like you know it's it's easier to to sometimes uh, see someone who is outside of a small community, especially when dealing with complex mental health problems. And I know that certainly Wayne has talked about people travelling within towns, different towns, and so on. So I see that a lot. Um, and I have to say that the biggest negative is actually continuity of care. I would I would agree. Um, I have continuity of care because I guess I'm here every week um, and I've got a really strong team of locals who uh, uh, are on the ground full-time, well-connected, stable, have great connections with the GPs. So I think that I'm pretty privileged in, in my situation. Um, and um, the only other thing I'd have to say is that... Um, uh, I have a you know a family in Sydney, so that's why I split my time. Uh, and I'm pretty passionate about rural and remote mental health, but um, I have to balance that with uh, you know a partner who can't work out of the city. And I think that that's a significant disadvantage to some of these services. Do you think, Michael, that there are any ways that we can make these services work better? What what needs to be done for rural areas in order to take better advantage of the fly-in, fly-out services? Uh, well, I think that, as I say, I'm lucky in the fact that I have a really strong, stable team that I work with. Uh, I know other areas aren't so lucky to have that. Um, we also have, uh, a, you know, our, our ward has a particular setup that I'm also um, pretty lucky to be working with. Um, but um, I know a lot of my colleagues, uh, where they're working in bigger areas and bigger regions, uh, they have much more fragmentation because they have a much higher turnover of staff. The other thing, of course, that's uh, been a boon for people living in rural areas needing specialised mental health care has been telepsychiatry and case conferencing. And I want you to ask you, Ros, what, how you find these services from your point of view and what it's like to arrange these services. Is it easy? Is it, is it something that you do frequently? and is it useful? Oh, look, it's definitely useful. It certainly changed the landscape of dealing with um, serious psychological distress in the in rural areas and chronic stuff as well. Um, <clears throat> the case conferencing, uh, I'll do that one first. That's actually pretty uh, tricky to organise if you're going to follow all the MDS rules around case conferencing. But that's uh, when you can do that and when you've got a system in place, which I've been doing a lot more of, um, it's really, really helpful. And it means that if I'm out of town, because um, I work in both Cowra and Canaldra doing procedural general practice and someone's having a breakdown, I've got other people who have been along to case conferences and, and know sort of there's not much handover required, they can step in. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about people like paramedics and nurses, not just, um, no, certainly psychologists are very thin on the ground. Uh, telepsychiatry has definitely changed um, what we've done in the last five years and the MBS item numbers are fairly self-explanatory, a bit less complicated than the case conferencing ones, although there's more and more um, added to them all the time. Uh, I find that there's certain psychiatrists who uh, they sort of make that their core business, so they're the ones who we tend to deal with the most in telepsychiatry. Um, and I'm really looking forward to using more telepsychology as well in, in the years ahead. But um, definitely it's something that rural general practitioners really need to have their head around. Mm -hmm. 
What about from your point of view, Michael? How does telepsychiatry and case conferencing work from your end of the, the sure. arrangement? Well, I, I do in one of my, in the, my job in Armadale, uh, every second clinic I do via telepsychiatry and I do that from mental health service to mental health service. So I usually have a care coordinator in the room when I do that. So I'm quite familiar with it um, and uh, I find it very helpful. Um, in my other job <laughs> at St Vincent's, uh, so I think it's having had the experience of being out here and looking at those uh, sorts of issues that Jan, um, that slide that Jan put up about um, practitioners feeling uh, either inexperienced or less skilled or unsupported. Um, so at St Vincent's, um, we looked at that and we're moving to uh, make as part of the This Way Up service to add in a telepsychiatry, uh, telepsychology and case conferencing services. Um, which is really focused around the fact that uh, the This Way Up service is built within St Vincent's Hospital. We've got a lot of resources and we want to be out there trying to help rural practitioners to treat their patients better. It's about uh, upskilling rural clinicians and improving access to services. Mm -hmm. So I'm a fan. So is this going to be available around from all over Australia, Michael? Will be. It will be, yeah. And Genevieve's asked how much is it going to cost? There won't be a cost, so it will be billed through Medicare. So, Wayne, we've heard that there are some community-led initiatives that can make a difference in mental health care. This fits in with the notion that's, that's around in the literature of social prescribing, of GPs perhaps suggesting to people that things that they can do within the community that will help them with their mental health. What sorts of things do you know about, Wayne, that have been put into place successfully in the community? Well, I've seen a, a, a John Harper from Mate Helping Mate. Um, they work a person's property if they're um, suffering from a, a mental illness where they rehabilitate. Uh, he'll go and uh, they'll spend a lot of time talking to each other and encouraging each other to get out. Um, I actually travelled with John and went from farmer to farmer with him and he was quite brilliant. Of course, a lot of them... Um, like we were at the men's sheds, of course, and you know they do a mental health um, questionnaire in many men's sheds now before you even become a part of them. And there's a lot of people around just trying to get people around to exercise of a Saturday morning and then have breakfast together and then just um, have a general chat over breakfast. And I've been a few towns where that's becoming more popular. That's very popular around the Sydney area. So, and I'm glad to see that because, you know, the endorphins from exercise and sweat, um, mm -hmm is a wonderful thing. <laughs> Wayne's a big fan of sweat, I can tell you that. I went to a Lifeline lecture from the Central West and the CEO said that 70% of the calls I get from men um, is loneliness. It was a men's health thing and I'm sure it must be somewhere near the same for women. So just encouraging people to socialise, mm. even if it's to get along and watch their local netball or rugby team play every week. The loneliness um, really surprised me and we all know what happens. Uh, loneliness, yeah. you get too much time to think. <laughs> We are increasingly recognising loneliness and isolation as a very important factor in suicide. So uh, I'm, I was going to ask the rest of the panel whether they were aware of any initiatives in the community that have made a difference in their community. Ros, can you answer that question? Well, yeah, I mean, there's uh, certainly informal um, initiatives that uh, really do address the loneliness thing. So friendship groups and just people just meeting up together and sharing life together. Mm -hmm. um, even things like the our local community garden on a Friday night, they now have a um, 
a working bee and a barbecue so you can bring along your meat and that's sort of increased in numbers and then you're all contributing to the community through the garden mm. um, right up to the organized things like the CWA and the men's shed and the Lions Club still meets uh, so there's there's a whole range of things. I think what's really important for clinicians is knowing how to refer people even to the informal stuff. Mm -hmm. And you really only know that if you know about, like if you're on the ground and you know what's going on each week. Well, yeah, I mean, there's uh, certainly informal um, initiatives that uh, really do address the loneliness thing. So friendship groups and just people just meeting up together and sharing life together. Mm -hmm. um, even things like the our local community garden on a Friday night, they now have a... Um, a working bee and a barbecue so you can bring along your meat and that's sort of increased in numbers and then you're all contributing to the community through the garden mm. um, right up to the organized things like the CWA and the men's shed and the Lions Club still meets uh, so there's there's a whole range of things I think what's really important for clinicians is knowing how to refer people even to the informal stuff mm -hmm. and you really only know that if you know about like if you're on the ground and you know what's going on each week. Let's talk about the place of e-mental health in all of this. We know that e-mental health consists of websites for psychoeducation, apps for symptom management and online programs which fill the gaps in services left by the lack of the medical workforce, provide appropriate low intensity services as standalone interventions to help people with less uh, severe mental health problems and they are fantastic to augment face-to-face -face care uh, where people like Betty can only be there once a month or um, or where people only have access to 10 Medicare rebates um, so that may well not be enough to deal with the problems that they're experiencing so there's a number of different ways in which online treatment programs fit into service provision michael i can see you busting <laughs> i just want to add in as well that they're really 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 handy for that period you've got between you seeing the patient and then waiting as we've heard a couple of weeks to get in to see a therapist Mm -hmm. So I'd strongly encourage people to familiarise themselves and to use them in exactly the way that Jan Jan's saying. I just want to add in while I think of it too, that the other place that they fit is in resilience building in vulnerable people. There you can as a GP you can often identify people that are teetering on the brink or vulnerable because of their family histories or their life experience and Online treatment programs are often very good ways of teaching people emotional management skills or CBT-based skills that they otherwise won't have the opportunity to learn. This is just a, a heads up about the Head to Health website that the federal government established in late 2017. That's a portal to all the reliable Australian online resources that you might like to use and a great way of helping yourself find out about what online resources are available for the people that you see. To illustrate the potential of e-mental health resources in the rural environment, we talked about a patient that we called Colin. Colin is a 54-year-old patient of yours who, well, patient of the general practitioners. I apologise to those of you who aren't GPs. He owns a local service station down the road in a nearby village on the highway and he's presented to his GP for a repeat of blood pressure medications. So the GP notices that he kind of looks tired and not himself and 
asks Colin how he's doing and Colin does report that has, he's got some sleep disturbance. There are some coded green uh, comments there in brackets after sleep disturbance, which gives me the cue to ask Michael, what do they mean, Michael? Why sure. does it say T <laughs> insomnia course next to sleep disturbance? Look, um, so at This Way Up, we have a series of well-being programs. So we have our disorder-specific programs. So that's depression, GAD, um, there's nine, pro 10 programs that we have. But we also have a series of well-being programs. And our insomnia course is one of those well-being programs. We also have, it's a mindfulness course and a coping with stress course. It is a four-session course of good, solid cognitive behavioural therapy. It's not um, just sleep hygiene. It's actually looking at the way that we think about sleep um, and our behaviours that perpetuate the cycle. So it's a, it's a really effective way to just... To, to introduce the idea for people that something other than benzos or zolpiclone is, is, is something that we can do. Wendy has just mentioned in the chat box that there's a real problem with e-mental health resources and that is the issues around computer access and literacy and even literacy issues. And Wendy, I really do recognise that that is a problem. But it, one of the things that I can say that will, will perhaps help you with that is that there is evidence um, that somebody helping you with an online program doesn't diminish its effectiveness. So that can be an interpreter or someone reading the, the uh, material online to you. So that's reassuring. I can't do a whole lot about computer access and literacy, but you can. So, uh, some people actually provide computers in their, their practices for patients to use. Some practice nurses are happy to help patients with the access to and and use of online resources. So there are actually some workarounds for those problems that, that you mentioned um, that patients can have with the e-mental health resources. Let's go back to Colin. In the middle of telling Colin about his, the TWU insomnia course, it became quite obvious that he wasn't listening to me. Uh, I then proceeded to ask him a little bit more about what was going on in his life. And it appears with uh, that what I didn't know was that Colin's wife had left him and taken the teenage children with him a couple of months ago. He's also commented that he's under significant financial strain because of roadworks on the highway, reducing the, the amount of traffic that's coming past his service station. These are two very important things and it's clear that Colin wasn't going to mention them unless we had a long conversation about them. He also says, that his alcohol intake has increased lately. Now, Betty, I wondered if you might tell us what this little coded green thing was after increased alcohol intake. Audit C, daybreak and on track. What am I trying to indicate there? Right, so Audit C is an assessment. Three questions, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, just, yeah, to assess a person's alcohol use. The mm -hmm. OnTrack app I have used with clients and it's a great way for them to assess um, their alcohol use or their relationship with alcohol. Um, and it can be a helpful way, I guess, to set goals and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's based on motivational interviewing techniques and indeed it's a great way to learn about motivational interviewing if you're a practitioner because it translates what you actually do in a consultation into the online environment and you can learn uh, several things from looking at the 
the on track um, uh, program yourself. That's an online program. Daybreak, stuck in there in the middle of those, is actually an app that I've been using over the last month as I prepared for the previous we webinar, which was about alcohol uh, misuse and online resources. Daybreak comes from a website called Hello Sunday Morning, which is dedicated to help people change their relationship with alcohol. The app itself consists of a forum on which people can support each other to reach their goals around alcohol and it is an excellent forum. It's particularly good in that instead of encouraging you with the daily messages to go on and, and um, confess your, your sins around alcohol or, or, or generally talk about yourself, it actually encourages you to get onto the app and and support other people. And it's it's very much a group process on the Daybreak app and it's free to all Australians. It is um, 9.95 outside Australia. The federal government supports the use of that app by Australians, uh, people within Australia. So social withdrawal, he doesn't go to footy anymore. He's used to coach footy. He's doesn't play the, his um, brass instrument. It's a tuba, isn't it, in the band? And he hasn't been going to the golf club lately. He confesses that he's not eating very well because he can't be bothered cooking for himself and he can't be bothered doing any exercise either. Now, those two things, relationship split and financial strain, together with wondering if life is still worth living, should be making the hair on the back of your head stand on end like it is on the back of mine. So what's beyond now? Anyone got any experience with Beyond Now? Michael, I think you were telling me. I have, <laughs> yes. It's oh, Beyond yes. Now. So it's a safety planning app um, and it's very good. So yep. I would certainly be one that I would recommend that people become familiar with um, in order to recommend to people. I'm on a crusade for everybody in Australia to know about the Beyond Now app. And in fact, I'm starting from a, a bit behind um, the Beyond Now app because not everyone in Australia, not every practitioner in Australia seems to know about suicide safety planning. And suicide safety planning has been around since the 1990s and there's evidence to show that it is an intervention that works very well to help reduce the immediate risk of suicide. Um, safety planning um, it helps people have a plan in their pocket for dealing with uh, sudden changes in their mood, sudden suicidal urges. Colin's a bit of a problem because he sees depression as a character weakness. Now, Wayne, you tell me that this is not an uncommon thing. And I know that some members of my family also would agree with this, that depression is not an illness but a character weakness. How on earth are we going to overcome that? Look, we spend a lot of time you know, redefining masculinity. Um, within the NRL community, we say that to put your hand up is actually a strength and a strength of character. Because if you put your hand up, then you know that others around you will know that if you do it, then they're okay to do it so we can save lives. So it really is a lot around redefining masculinity in this area. And we're finding that most folks, if you put it to them the right way, will see that. And that's what we have to keep working on. 
there are a lot of psychoeducational resources about depression and mental illness generally online. But in Colin's case, I'd be a bit inclined to recommend that he go to My Compass and have a look at the men's module on My Compass. The men's module is very useful because uh, men are more likely to go and look at something that's labelled men. And My Compass is My Compass is different from the other online treatment programs in that instead of being linear, in other words, going in at the beginning and working your way through to the end, you can go in through the, the registration process and the short questionnaire at the beginning and go straight to whichever of the 14 modules is of particular interest to you. And in Colin's case, I'd be, I would stipulate that the men's module was the thing that I thought that would be a good thing for him to look at. He might also look at the improving sleep module or the reducing stress and, and overload module, but that's the way in for him via the men's module. And then, of course, there's when Colin gets to the point of um, accepting that depression is what's going on, um, he doesn't want to see anybody but the GP. So that's where something like the This Way Up Depression course might come into play. Is that not so, Michael? Absolutely. Um, and it's been, I mean, these online ICBT courses um, that Australia uh, right up there is in the world leaders in producing have been so well researched now that we know that they work and it's just a matter of actually getting them out there and getting more people aware of them so that we can see the benefits. So you've just heard the highlights from webinar 26. If you'd like to watch the recording of the whole webinar, you can access it on demand from the MPRAC page of the Black Dog Institute website. Thanks for listening.